Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're the neighbor of Russia and the Arctic, and Canadians know that very well. And that's why making sure that we isolate economically, diplomatically, and politically, Russia is definitely at the basis of our foreign policy right now. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And that was the voice of Canada's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, speaking in an exclusive interview with Politico's David Herzenhorn. She talked about the war in Ukraine, the growing food crisis that it's triggered, and about relations between the EU and Canada, including the controversial CETA trade deal. You'll hear more from that interview later in the podcast. Also in this episode, we'll give you our brief, some might call it irreverent, halftime report on the European Commission now that it's reached the midpoint in its term. Who's proven to be a big match player? Who's been scoring own goals? And who's been relegated to the bench? That's all coming up. But first, let's dive into the big news of the week here in Europe. Finland and Sweden's applications to become members of NATO. Welcome to our correspondent in Stockholm, Charlie Duxbury. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Our senior reporter covering NATO, Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And we'll also be joined mid-panel from Warsaw by Matt Karnichnik, our chief Europe correspondent. So it's really been a historic week, and we've said that you know quite a lot in recent months. But I think it's fully merited again uh, on this occasion, the week in which both Sweden and Finland have submitted their formal applications to join NATO. Charlie, just give us a sense. You've been living in Stockholm for 12 years. You've been reporting from the region for even longer. How big a moment is this? And, you know, how does it feel, I guess? Could you have imagined this even um, a few months ago? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, it feels like a significant shift in the way things are here. I mean, certainly in Sweden, being free from alliances, as they termed it, and being neutral, as they used to term it, was for a long time a real core pillar of foreign policy here and a sort of sense of national identity, certainly among social democrats who have been the governing party here for long chunks of the last century. So to kind of step back from that and give it up is does feel like a sort of a historic shift for, for many people. And for the Finns, I mean, their post-war sort of history is largely defined by this relationship with Russia and how to play that. 
um, striking this kind of delicate balance between East and West for many decades. So for people in Finland too to to sort of step into NATO, although both countries were very close partners, to actually take the step in and become full members is feels very significant. One of the things I remember when we were talking uh, before about this prospect, I think it was before the war in Ukraine had had begun or this phase of it, if you like, uh, but as the Russian military buildup was taking place. And then, you know, we were talking about the fact that this change in posture, if you like, from Russia could actually make it more risky and more dangerous for perhaps particularly the Finns with that long border with Russia to take the step towards NATO. So as we were saying just before we started recording, of course, the obvious answer to the question is why have they moved is the war in Ukraine. But what has changed about the mindset, the strategic calculus that even in this short space of time, they, the Finns and the Swedes have decided actually it's more risky to stay outside NATO. What's kind of prompted that almost complete rewiring, if you like, of the mindset? Well, this week in, in Stockholm, we had a visit from the, the Finnish president, Sauli Nienister, and he made an interesting point in his comments to journalists that it was Vladimir Putin's statements in December which really changed the landscape for the Finns. And when Putin said that it just wouldn't be okay for Finland and Sweden to take this step into NATO, Nienister said that he really felt that that was Putin kind of ripping up the agreement that Finland and, and Russia had over how things work in Europe and that he felt that Putin was trying to deny them a key aspect of what it means to be a sovereign state in Europe today. So he felt like Putin was reneging on that deal and that all bets were off and that then it was Finland needed to kind of take another close look at what its relationship with Russia was. And when they did that, they kind of decided that what Russia then went on to do in Ukraine kind of confirmed their worst fears about how Russia could treat its neighbours. And they felt like taking all those kind of aspects into consideration that for Finland, you know, NATO was suddenly the best option for their security. And when they'd, when the Finnish leader started to kind of give indications that that was how they were feeling, then the Finnish population kind of got behind that after many years of being quite fearful of what NATO membership would mean for, for their relationship with Russia. That kind of got the ball rolling. And then the Swedes kind of looked at that and thought, well, we should probably take another look at, at our relationship with Russia as well. And what would happen if Finland were to join NATO and we were to be left outside? We'd be the only non-NATO state around the Baltic Sea apart from Russia. That's not a situation we necessarily want to find ourselves in. So it kind of, that from December onwards, that momentum started building. And then it went really quickly over the last few weeks um, leading up to these announcements over the last sort of week, 10 days, where both Finland and Sweden simultaneously, almost simultaneously, came out and said that they saw NATO as the way forward. Yeah, it's really in interesting, I think, from a journalistic point of view, to how they made this you know, historic shift within weeks sound, I don't want to say boring, but it just became normal that suddenly they were going to do this, something that had seemed inconceivable not long ago, suddenly saying we were kind of joking that perhaps this was a kind of Nordic tactic just to just go moment by moment, you know, with kind of one statement after the other to kind of take the drama out of what is actually a really, really dramatic step. I see we've been joined uh, by Matt now, who I think is in Warsaw and has made an effort for us for once, all uh, suited and booted, looking sharp. Matt, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm wearing my only tie today. 
Wow, an honour, an honour indeed. Listen, we'll come back to you in a second, but let me bring in uh, Lily here first, uh, our uh, senior reporter covering NATO. From the Alliance point of view, from from NATO headquarters, Lily, how has this move been received? Uh, Again, this is probably something that NATO officials a few months ago would not have imagined. How are they adapting to it and what plans are they having to make to bring in Finland and Sweden, which they're obviously aiming to do pretty rapidly? So there's a lot of enthusiasm at NATO headquarters for this move. I think the vast majority of delegations are uh, very happy with this historic step. In practical terms, however, there isn't actually a ton of work to do because Sweden and Finland in practice have been working very, very closely with NATO over the past years. They're fully interoperable, which actually makes them quite different from um, some of the previous hopefuls and uh, countries that that have joined the military alliance in the sense that um, on a technical level, there isn't much work that they will have to do. They are almost ready to go. Right. I mean, this is one of the certainly I've seen uh, both Swedish and Finnish units operate as part of NATO peacekeeping forces in the Balkans, for example. Uh, you know, they weren't officially part of NATO, but they were part of those NATO led forces. However, Obviously, one thing here is that NATO is or will be now, um, if you like, legally obliged to defend these countries in the the face of of attack. How much thinking, how much work has been done in terms of planning about how NATO might do that if we see an aggressive Russian reaction? Uh, You know, at the moment, it seems Moscow's keeping everyone guessing. You had the initial response from the foreign ministry, which was critical, uh, talking about a military technical response, rather ominous phrase, which we heard in the build up to the war in Ukraine. And then we've heard Vladimir Putin in recent days saying, oh, we have no problem with this. So, you know, we don't know. Um, what does NATO think about how it would be able to respond, including in that kind of grey period between when the countries have applied for membership and when they actually become members? So at the moment, I think a lot of the focus is on this so-called gray period um, between the the moment of application and the time when all 30 current members have ratified the membership. The current plan, I believe, is for NATO to uh, boost its presence in the region around Finland and Sweden to provide them with some extra security, even though formally they wouldn't be you know, under the treaty umbrella. And then um, there does seem to be a very strong focus on um, getting formal and informal uh, security guarantees bilaterally. So, for example, uh, the United Kingdom has given some security guarantees to both countries. Um, I know that they're also discussing security arrangements with European Union partners. The EU treaty also has some provisions on you know, mutual solidarity in times of crisis. So I, I think at the moment, it seems like it's mostly sorted out. Uh, when I talked to the Finnish foreign minister, Pekka Havisto, over the weekend, he seemed pretty confident that they have backing from their allies. We are also expecting that many EU uh, member states, when, when Finland finally announces the application and sends it to Brussels, will uh, refer to 42.7 yeah. article and so forth to, to support that you, you get even as an EU member, uh, even when you are not yet in NATO. Yeah. And as a final question, because I know you That was the Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto talking to Lillian Berlin at a NATO uh, ministers' meeting over the weekend. Uh, you may have heard a little bit of hotel music in the in the background that always adds to the atmosphere. Matt, let's bring in... Uh, we're, we're talking a moment, we should say, obviously, the, the main political obstacle at the moment uh, seems to be objections from Turkey. But Matt, jump in with your thoughts. 
Well, I just wanted to say I just got out of a speech by the Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, who announced that Poland would in fact come to the aid of Finland and Sweden should they be attacked by Russia during this accession period. So there seems to be a lot of solidarity there already from major European uh, countries. And they certainly are doing everything they can to signal to Russia that uh, it shouldn't try to test NATO at this time. Uh, He also said that they would protect every inch of NATO territory, which is something that we've we've also heard in the past. But I think it's it's interesting that he's using this sort of international forum in Warsaw today to make it clear that they're not going to tolerate any sort of, you know, aggression by Russia. Uh, Morawiecki also called for permanent allied bases on the eastern flank of NATO, which is something that is definitely not going to go down well in Moscow. And he said that if Ukraine were to lose this war, it would be the end of the world as we know it. So they're really not beating around the bush here. Well, are you filing on that story, Matt? I mean, it would be good to get, you know, a few hundred words uh, out there in the next in the next hour or so. You able uh, to do that? Yeah, could do. <laughs> could do. Good. Let's jump back to Charlie and talk for a moment about Turkey, which is a member of NATO, of course, and the objections that have been raised by Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan over the prospect of Finland and Sweden joining. He seems to be accusing both Finland and Sweden of harbouring Kurdish terrorists in some form or another and saying that Turkey has demanded the transfer or extradition um, of some of these people. He he particularly referenced Sweden uh, yesterday. I mean, is there anything to any of this or is he actually looking for something completely different? Maybe we'll get Lily's perspective of that in a moment. But on the issue of the the Kurds in Sweden and Finland, tell us what you reckon. Yeah, I mean, the, the Kurds who are speaking kind of openly about this in Sweden say that this is part of a long running campaign by the Turks um, to apply pressure to Sweden, to extradite people that they feel have broken Turkish law. Obviously, those Kurds in Sweden are, are fighting back against this and saying that, you know, these accusations are completely unjustified. And this is an attempt by Turkey to kind of squash their freedom of speech and kind of force them to to go back to Turkey and face what they think would be, you know, best long prison terms, if not sort of worse. Um, and they, you know, they say that this is completely unjustified and this labelling of them as terrorists and so on is is absurd. Even some members of parliament in Sweden have been labelled by the Turkish authorities as terrorists. And they say that that's just the Turkish response to anyone who tries to defend the interests of Kurds wherever they be in the world. Mm. Lily, what's the perspective from NATO? How concerned are they about um, Erdogan's response? As we know, NATO operates by consensus, by unanimity. In other words, this cannot be done without Turkey uh, going along with it. You know, how concerned are officials from other NATO countries and NATO headquarters by this? And, and do they have any sense about how it could be resolved? Um, I think overall officials are relatively confident that this can be sorted out and that it won't pose a significant threat to Finland and Sweden's applications. But at the same time, we've obviously noticed that this saga has been dragging on now for quite a few days. Um, There's still no end in sight. But there are some signals. So, for example, the Turkish foreign minister had talks with his American counterpart, Antony Blinken. And um, after the talks, um, it seemed like the 
uh, Turkish delegation was relatively upbeat. The foreign minister gave a statement saying that talks with the U.S. regarding the sale of F-16 jets were going on a positive trajectory. And um, the sense I'm getting out of NATO in general is that there is um, a sense that Erdogan has gotten a very strong negotiating chip. So this is a rare negotiating chip because it's something that all the other allies want to happen very, very quickly. And of course, consensus is needed for Finland and Sweden to move ahead. So um, it's very possible that Ankara is simply using this moment to negotiate on a whole range of unrelated files where uh, they want concessions from allies because this is simply a good moment to bring up old grievances and wish lists. Matt, chime in. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, Lily is, is very diplomatic in the way that she puts that. I don't think there's any doubt here that Erdogan is using this for a horse trade, basically. He sees a golden opportunity to get these F-16s, to get a few other things that he wants. And Chavustolu sort of, you know, coquettishly hinted at this yesterday in New York, where he said, well, you know, I think we can, uh, you know, maybe continue talking and, uh, you know, definitely left open the window for some kind of deal here. I don't think it has anything really to do with the Curtis situation, but that also helps him, Erdogan now, domestically, because this is something that uh, plays well with his base in Turkey. So it really is a win-win for him all around. But I don't think that there's any doubt that at the end of the day, Finland and Sweden will be joining NATO. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Charlie, Lily, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So this week marked the halfway point in the term of the current European Commission, the commission led by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. So here at Politico, we thought that would be a good time to take stock of their work. It was a newsroom-wide effort. And we thought we'd play on the sporting uh, metaphor as, is, as it is kind of half-time. So we put together a half-time report looking at some of the key players in the European Commission. And the introduction to that piece was written by our senior reporter in Berlin, Josh Posner. Hi, Josh. Hello, Andrew. And I see you've entered into the footballing spirit by wearing your Nottingham Forest shirt. And of course, you will probably not be slow to point out to us that they were twice uh, champions of Europe. Huge um, club, indeed. Yeah. So I um, and the question here, I guess, is um, how many champions do we have in this uh, commission lineup? But maybe just tell us a little bit first about the project, uh, how we uh, went about it, and how you went about writing the the introduction to these assessments of the different players, if you like. Yeah. So as you know, at Politico, we we like to take an irreverent look sometimes at the the European Commission, and now they're halfway through the mandate. This was an appropriate time to look at the stars, look at those people that have really led the agenda on all the big topics that we've been dealing with, the pandemic, of course, the war uh, in Ukraine right now, but also digital issues, um, broader health policy, migration policy. And so this is our attempt to rank and grade the top players in von der Leyen's cabinet, including von der Leyen herself, and look ahead to the second half of the mandate, the months and years running up to 2024, and see what the opportunities and the challenges is uh, are for the, the commission. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about trying to assess this commission's work is obviously when you're doing this, you can look at what they set out to do. And we have certainly drawn some conclusions from that. But of course, 
for this particular commission, there have been these two huge events which obviously determined so much of its agenda or have ended up defining so much of its agenda. So when you were looking at uh, all of this and writing the introduction, who kind of stood out for you in terms of having either pushed on with what they said they were going to do or having responded well to these, you know, huge unexpected events that were thrown at them? Yeah, exactly. So so looking back at the early speeches in the early weeks of the commission when von der Leyen was presenting her team, the Green Deal, the the climate change mitigating policies were obviously a big deal then. And then the pandemic hit, which kind of threw all of the agenda into the, the wind, if you like, and that's been dominating uh, the game plan for the last two years, two and a half years. So that, that really has been predictably the dominant uh, factor here. Of course, the commission started its new mandate with a brand new formation. There was the president, there were the three executive vice presidents, along with the high representative for foreign affairs, Josep Borrell. Then you have beneath them the four vice presidents, then the, the 20 rank and file commissioners. And that, that kind of structure, I think the formation, if you like, if we're going to continue with the footballing analogies, has kind of worked out weirdly because you have in, in some cases base level commissioners, relatively junior staffers like Thierry Breton, overshadowing his boss, Margrethe Vestager, who we we rank as being maybe not one of the most powerful uh, members of the college anymore uh, compared to some of her colleagues. But also the, the pandemic and, and more recently the, the broader focus on energy policy in, in the EU has meant some of the commissioners that you wouldn't ordinarily think of as heavy hitters have been thrust into the spotlights. Kadri Simpson, who has had a very busy time having to deal with energy policy. Uh, of course, the health commissioner, Stella Kirikiades. She's obviously had much to do over the last few years. Also, Maro Shevchevic, who's been a long-standing member of the college. I think this is his third term now. And he's been shepherding uh, Brexit and Swiss trade talks over recent months. Um, so these, if you like, these maybe less standout names from the college have really been doing quite big jobs over recent months. Right. We should just say this is, a, a, once again, you get used to this in Brussels, but the College of Commissioners is what a lot of people would understand as the commission. It's the body made up of the of the commissioners themselves. And we have uh, ranked each one of the commissioners that we selected for this team, if you like, according to rankings for power and for policy. And we've also left some people out, uh, people who might regard themselves as, you know, first to live in material, but haven't made it. Um, Josh, any there that... Um, that people might be surprised to see have not made the team? Well, we mentioned him a second ago, but Josep Borrell is not in the team. You know, if we're going to continue the football analogies when we're talking about the squad, I think they've had a number of very troublesome away days. Not least Borrell's trip to Moscow before the start of the war, where he was kind of taken apart by veteran Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov. That is one big name that isn't on the list uh, Dina Valian, also the transport commissioner, she played quite a big role during the early months of the pandemic in coordinating transport uh, policy, but she hasn't made it into our starting 11 uh, as right. we've ranked. Which is actually, I just know, <laughs> I was doing the final edits on these the other night and I just noticed there's actually 12 of them. But I guess we can count von der Leyen as like the, you know, the sort of the coach and then 11, 11 players. Anyway, it's a really interesting uh, list and, and, and very much open for debate, right? Josh, even within our newsroom, you were saying before uh, we started, you don't necessarily agree with all the, 
the rankings and, and those who were in and those who were out. As with all of these things, Andrew, we, we love arguing with each other. And there were emails late last night between the colleagues who were debating whether or not Dombrovskis should get a higher or lower score and whether or not Timmermans really deserved his, uh, his power score. So these, these debates will continue. And of course, we'd always encourage our readers to get in touch via email or social media and tell us what they think. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, the debate will continue. We'll be sure to include a link to the piece in our show notes. Josh, thanks very much. Have a great day, Andrew. We'll be back in just a moment with Melanie Jolie. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Earlier this week, Canadian Minister for Foreign Affairs Melanie Jolie sat down with Politico's own David Herzenhorn in our offices here in Brussels. Jolie was in town for a meeting with EU foreign ministers and also attended the EU Foreign Affairs Council meeting as a guest along with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Koleba. David and the minister began with a discussion about Jolie's recent trip to Ukraine and how her country is willing to help in the growing food crisis as a result of Russia's war. It is clear that for us, what is happening right now in terms of food and potential food crisis is linked to Russia's war against Ukraine. But we need to do more to show African countries, Latin American countries, and Middle Eastern countries, and Asian countries, that we are there to share solutions. One of the big issues we're seeing right now is that millions of tons of grains are stuck in silos in Ukraine. We need to make sure that we free Ukrainian wheat and that we send them to European ports to be shipped. Canada is one of the biggest exporters of wheat in the world. We have a lot of expertise. We're really willing to send Canadian container ships to make sure that Grains can be then sent to Egypt, Lebanon, and, and many other countries. And that's one of the conversations I've been having intensively at uh, the EU, even again today, with, particularly with Romania. David and the minister then moved on to discuss Canada's relationship with the EU, including CETA, which is the EU-Canada free trade deal that entered into force in 2017, but still needs to be greenlit by quite a few parliaments around Europe before it can take full effect. And a quick bit of buzzword busting here. Jolie uses the word friendshoring, a recently coined term for leaning into alliances with friendly countries. 
You had a meeting this morning, a joint ministerial committee that exists as a result of a strategic partnership agreement Mm -hmm. reached five years ago. We know CETA, big trade agreement was reached, and yet ratification is still pending. Both are under provisional Mm -hmm. application. What's going on with our EU friends, your EU friends? (laughs) Do they need to get on with it already? Um, So I think that the Ukraine war has been very helpful in strengthening our ties, but also has shown how much it is now important to do friendshoring and to work with allies that are democratic and that share the same values. And in that sense, there's no more reliable partner than Canada. Canada is one of the most reliable partners of the EU. And so... When dealing with the question of energy security and food security also in Europe, Europeans know that they can count on Canada. We will be there to help and we will provide solutions. Now, CETA is a good deal. Canada is the only G7 country having uh, free trade agreements with all other G7 countries. We share progressive values with Europeans And at the same time, indeed, the deal has been put into force for now five years, and it's been beneficial to both sides. So, of course, I want to make sure that uh, countries that have not ratified it ratify it. But I think that the discussion regarding free trade has changed, particularly recently. But I think in that sense, I'm uh, hearing positive vibes from my colleagues across the EU. And they should get there, right? We also saw this during the pandemic, right? Extraordinary partnership. Of course, indeed, indeed. EU, Canada becoming leaders in manufacturing uh, vaccines and inoculations and in exports. Indeed. So to the point where we see the comparison now, Mm -hmm. obviously with China, which still struggles. And, you know, we want to make sure that we, we have 28 agreements with the EU. There's no other country in the world that has more engagement with the EU than Canada. But at the same time, we want to finish the ratification process with CETA and the Strategic Partnership Agreement. And we have to get to the next level of partnership, which is really creating integrated supply chains. And on that, on energy, it's important, but also I would say On technology and critical minerals, it's even more important. Well, both are important, obviously. Mm But when thinking of the future of what will be required in all of our economies to be at the forefront of innovation. And you mentioned liquefied natural gas. Let's Mm -hmm. pause there for a moment because the EU obviously struggling right now with getting an oil sanctions program, an oil embargo in place. And Canada has done that. The United States Mm -hmm. has been able to do that. Uh, One thing that might help is if Canada, which has the possibility of selling a lot of liquefied natural Mm -hmm. gas around the world, was able to ship not just on the Pacific side, where I know you've been building a big terminal, but on the Atlantic side. Has that come up in your conversations here? Does Canada have a role to play in the EU's more diverse energy supply of the future? So on question of sanctions in general, indeed, we've been good at coordinating with the EU and with the US. And At this point, it's really the G7 that has been this coordination body to really provide momentum and create the space for coordination. But we need to continue to have momentum. And uh, we will work with our European friends to make sure that they have solutions to deal with the impacts of their 
sanctions against Russia. Indeed, uh, we've been having conversations with uh, different countries of the EU regarding energy security projects and LNG and hydrogen. At the same time, I think it's important that while we're having these conversations, that on both sides of the ocean, it is well understood that we can go ahead and invest in these projects while making sure that we continue to support our Paris Agreement targets and commitments, and that our citizens understand that we are continuing to fight against climate change. If Europe is not able to have energy sources to deal with the impact of the oil ban, concretely what will happen is that some countries may have to revert to coal, which would be catastrophic when it comes to achieving our targets. And so what we want to do is to engage in that conversation on both sides of the ocean and at the same time that we talk concretely about projects. I imagine you're sympathetic because Canada obviously doesn't need Russian gas or oil in quite yeah, the same way. Yeah, Canada is not the same situation, David. Right. You know, and my goal is not to you know lecture my European colleagues. We don't have a strong economic tie to Russia, but we're the neighbor of Russia in the Arctic. And so, and Canadians know that very well. And that's why making sure that we isolate economically, diplomatically, and politically Russia is definitely uh, at the basis of our foreign policy right now, as it is for my European friends. We're running out of time. Yes, Let yes. me ask you two quick questions. One okay, on, good, good. on NATO, Finland and Sweden. Yep. I imagine that Canada's okay with a couple more allies who know how to fight on skis. <laughs> <laughs> have Norway, but uh, no. Cold, usually, we're better uh, at ice allies. hockey, and we're really good to uh, defeat on the ice rink. Uh, Finland and Sweden. Uh, this, is a, this is a question of pride back in my country. Uh, but jokes aside, uh, not only do we welcome the accession of Sweden and Finland to NATO, but a quick accession. I've already talked to my opposition critics. Uh, we're on this, and right now, our goal is to be one of the first countries, if not the first country, to ratify Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO. It is good that the seven out of eight Arctic Council countries be together within NATO, but at the same time, we need to make sure that the Arctic as itself is still based on international uh, rules and norms and that we continue to make it an area of cooperation. So... Canada, big supporter for for Finland and uh, very big and Sweden, very and, big. Uh, and you spoke about Arctic security, which is what I wanted to touch mm-hmm. on there. And then a last one is a personal one, which yes. I was surprised to find out that your husband was a violin maker and now <laughs> is involved in designing all kinds of super interesting <laughs> projects to attract public attention and provide experiences in motion and sound. And so I wonder, do you have guys have a giant hamster wheel in your house? <laughs> Tell us just a little bit about what it's like to live with such a creative uh, A creative man. Mind. Yeah. <laughs> mind. David, this is the first question ever being asked on what Felix does for a living. You know what? It's great to go back home and to be living with an artist because we never talk about politics and his work is, is just so inspiring. So throughout this crisis... Having somebody that was just able to ground me was not only uh, important, but I would say 
fundamental. And uh, his work has been, uh, yes, he, his goal is to make sure that um, people are happy and that, uh, you know, he, uh, he can spread good energy. So he's an industrial designer and yes, indeed, a violin maker. So he provides a lot of solution to urban planners that want to help uh, people to uh, engage in the public domain and meet and, and have fun. And they did make a giant hamster wheel, but maybe that's just politics feels like that, but I imagine you regular <laughs> exercise. No, I don't know. We have a yeah. great department, and uh, the problem is I always want to get rid of stuff in life, and he always wants to keep everything. So uh, he, we have uh, a bit of like an Alibaba cavern sometimes. No, it's home. important to remember, uh, Wendy Sherman, when she was here, the Deputy Secretary of State, spoke about this because um, Sophie Vilmes has taken a leave. As, yeah, as Sophie's minister. a good and, friend. And to remember that for these jobs that are so important to the world that require so much dedication yeah. and travel, family members, you know, are a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Felix and I have been trying to have children for some time, and uh, we've, uh, I've been uh, undergoing IVF treatments for some time, and so it's been definitely the war has been difficult in the context of continuing these processes. But I'm privileged, and when the, the on the night of the invasion, I was. Uh, at home, and I was able to be next to him. And I said, well, you know what? We are born and we live on the other side of the ocean, but I think also we live in the best country in the world. Canada is a great country, and you touch on the human element. I mean, we've seen surrogate moms in, mm-hmm. uh, in Ukraine who have been mm-hmm. impacted by this, yes, by I this know. war and the parents in, um, all over the world. Well, thank you for sharing thank you, personal David. observations <laughs> and diplomatic observations. <laughs> Melanie Jolie, great to thank be you, with David. you. Thank you for Good speaking night. in perfect Canadian English, uh, <laughs> much better than my uh, Queen's accented French. So come back to Politico with us anytime. Great to meet you in Brussels. <laughs> Thanks to David for bringing us that conversation with Melanie Jolie. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, perhaps leave us a rating or even a review, preferably a nice one. And if you want to contact us directly with your feedback or ideas, the email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Leila Aksu and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. This was officially episode 250 of our podcast. We've actually done a bunch more than that when you include special editions and bonus episodes, but it still feels like something of a landmark. So whether you've been with us from episode one, found us somewhere along the way, or joined us for the first time today, thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>